This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. There's still so much that we don't know about coronavirus, but the state is finally releasing more data about coronavirus cases that could help Oregonians understand a bit more about the global pandemic. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with The Oregonian. Later in the show, we'll put a name and a story to one of those cases. I chat with reporter Shane Dixon-Cavanaugh about the man who would be the first in the state to die of COVID-19, and why stories like his are so important. But first, investigative reporter Rob Davis talks about the fight to get more information from the state, and why, while Oregon is starting to take transparency seriously, there's still room for improvement. Here's that conversation. Rob Davis, thanks for taking time to talk today. How are you holding up? Uh, I'm doing okay, thanks. Um, I'm doing okay. Yep, family doing well. I know it's tough with the little one. You know, it's actually, it's actually, I think, um, one of the, one of the upshots of this is being able to spend more time with family and kind of reevaluating the things that matter in life. Um, so it's not all bad. So we are a little more than a month into the coronavirus situation here in Oregon, and we've come a long way in terms of the information that we're getting, but I'm wondering if you could take us back to the beginning. What type of information were we getting out of the state health authorities on on who had coronavirus or COVID-19 and who they were monitoring? Can you refresh our memory? Yeah, I mean, when it started, we were not getting good, reliable information out of the state that gave us much insight at all into the age or demographics that uh, were being affected by the coronavirus. And in fact, as it got worse, we were getting less and less information. Mm. And, you know, data points that they were sharing, they actually stopped sharing at sort of every step of the way, you know, in, in press conferences that the governor was giving, I was asking even before it was really bad like why why isn't the state doing more here to be transparent and and she kept falling back on what i think is a um a pretty lame crutch you know which was that uh when the first case was diagnosed you know a tv news crew uh showed up at the guy's house and that in another case when information came out that, you know, the children, you know, and this is at the veterans home in Lebanon, Mm -hmm. that a family who was known to work there was asked to leave a restaurant and, uh, their, their children were asked not to go to school. You know, we're now more than a thousand cases later. Uh, a lot of people are talking about what it has been like to go through this. So, you know, we, uh, at the Oregonian and, and reporters from uh, probably every media outlet in the state, I think, were uh, commendably pushing back on on what the state was doing. 
And, you know, it, it finally, I think kind of broke through to them. Um, you know, we had a chance to talk to the governor. She met virtually with the Oregonians editorial board. And in that conversation, you know, I told her this is not transparency for the sake of transparency. Like the, the information that the state has the ability to share can save lives. The, the state has a duty to the public to be sharing way more than it is today. And, and one example of that, uh, the, the state was reporting what the backlog at its public health lab was for testing. And as more private labs came online or said that they were coming online, the state stopped reporting what its backlog was. And at the same time, it was growing. Mm. And at the University of Washington, they have a lab there that was saying, you know, they had unused capacity. And so the idea that the state of Oregon would stop telling us that they have a backlog or that it was getting worse at the same time that other folks were saying, if anybody has a backlog, we can help you, um, was, I think, a, um, a real disservice to the people who live in the state. And, um, and I told her that. And, uh, you know, to her credit, in that conversation, she kind of put her talking points down. And, and it sounded like she got, you know, a pad of paper and a pen and said, okay, who is doing it well? What are examples of places that are reporting more than we are, you know, what should we be doing that we aren't? In what states uh, are doing a better job or were doing a better job at the time than, than Oregon? I mean, it's a real patchwork when you look across the country, you know, one state will report one thing and another won't. And we talked on Monday with the director of, of state health authority. My message to them has been, you know, Oregon has a chance to be the best at this in the nation. And to show other states how you do it right. And so let's seize that opportunity. And so, you know, the, the state has committed to continuing to expand what it's, what it's reporting. And so we're getting more information out on a daily basis. I, I mean, it is worth noting that there are still like a dozen states that aren't reporting how many people are in the hospital with this. It could not be more important to the economy of the nation and to each individual state's economy to know how many people are in the hospital and, um, you know, to know, to, to, to extrapolate from that where we are in bending our curve. And, um, you know, Oregon has been kind of reporting that with fits and starts and, uh, you know, they paused reporting on it last week because the numbers that they were putting out weren't accurate. Uh, they've corrected that. And, um, you know, uh, one, one good example of what Oregon is, is now reporting, um, you know, the number of ventilators that are in use. And the, it showed that 80 ventilators were in use and that there were something like, you know, more than 600 that were available. And, and it, it appears... Like we may be getting to a point where we're, um, you know, close to, if not peaking and, uh, knowing that there's a huge amount of ventilators that are sitting unused in the state is, is important to know and, and, and I think helped inform the governor's decision to ship the, um, 140 ventilators that Oregon received in the strate from the strategic stockpile, um, from the feds, uh, and to take those and send them to New York state where, you know, it's, it's possible that they're going to save 
lives. You know, we were in the dark for so long about knowing beyond who these people were um, with a large age range from 55 and older. We've finally getting more information, but uh, we're speaking on Wednesday, Rob, and now we finally know some of the demographics, um, the racial demographics of folks in Oregon. Uh, what can you tell us uh, about that that data? I, who who is uh, disproportionately affected that we know of at this time? So the demographic info that we have now is not perfect. It's being collected by county health departments, and they are going to people who have tested positive and interviewing them and you know trying to get as much information as they can. So there there's still a pretty big hole in this. You know what it shows for roughly the uh, 687, so 68% of the cases, roughly, um, or about two-thirds of the cases, we know whether the folks who have tested positive are Hispanic or not Hispanic. And, you know, what it shows for the cases that we know, uh, the Hispanic population in this state is just very disproportionately being affected by this. They're you know, kind of two ways to look at it of the 1100 cases that we know there are about 18% of that. There are 13% of the state's population mm. um, for the cases that we know the ethnicity of, they are about 30%. So again, um, it's not, the numbers are not perfect, but it does not. Um, I mean, it looks like, the virus is discriminating against people of color in the state. And, um, you know, and I'm just reaching out to folks in the advocacy community to figure out, you know, why that is and, you know, what, what factors are at play. I mean, in like in the farm worker community, for instance, they're still going to work, right. You know, and, and they're not left with, with, uh, with much choice there. Um, and, and so that's, that is uh, going to be a, a, a concern for, for folks going forward. It'll be interesting to see what uh, what you're able to find in other reporters, but I, I know that obviously Washington County and Marion County have been two hotspots, and those are um, you know two areas of the state where agriculture is a a, a big industry. So uh, it's I don't know if you can make that connection, but it will be interesting to see what we find. Exactly, I I just was. Um, talking to medical folks who work with the farm worker community. And, and they said, you know, sad to say that we're not surprised. Um, what else jumped out to you, Rob, uh, going through the demographics? I know that, you know, c- cities like Detroit and New Orleans, uh, African-American populations were disproportionately affected. Are we having any, any of that, uh, according to data that we've seen so far from Oregon? Not in the black community in the numbers that we have. I think they are about 2.2% of the state's population. And in, um, you know, the total number of cases, they're about 2.1%. But, you know, that's 23 cases in 1,100. And, um, you know, and we don't have the race available for 400 people who have tested positive. And so that number could very, very easily shoot up um, as uh, county health departments, you know, increasingly reach people who have been testing positive to to get a get a fuller picture of this. 
What else are you interested in knowing more uh, about from the state in terms of data they might have or questions that they're not asking? We want to see confirmed cases by hospital. Did all the Portlanders who fled to the coast for spring break take the virus with them and spread it there? You know, uh, some of these hospitals could very, you know, even even though we have capacity within the state system, it doesn't take much to overrun a hospital in rural Oregon that has, you know, five of its 25 beds open. We want to see these cases reported not just by county, but by zip code or census tract if it's available. Um, the state said that it, it's going to work towards zip code level reporting, which would help us to see where the hotspots are at a, a more granular level. We want to know what the underlying conditions are when somebody dies. Every death, the state has put out a press release that has said, you know, the patient had underlying health conditions. Well, what are they? Um, is this more likely to affect somebody who has uh, diabetes or, um, you know, heart disease or asthma or you know, any number of COPD? Or what What is going on there? And 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 again, with um, you know, race, race and ethnicity data we want to see that how it's uh, affecting people who die uh, from this and and we want to see that aggregated states working toward that as well and 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 one important number that the state is tracking um and that they have not yet committed to releasing is the number of healthcare workers who are testing positive the state can have all of the hospital capacity in the world but if it doesn't have doctors and nurses who can treat patients, it doesn't matter. And that is uh, really important for us to know and to be able to see and track. You know, I think there are 30 plus who have tested positive and, and, and we want to keep an eye on that going forward. Rob, you're an investigative reporter. Your job is, you know, to dig into the nitty gritty on issues from healthcare, like we're talking about now, to money and its influence in politics, to environmental issues. I mean, given your background and your expertise, are we doing a good job, you think, so far? I mean, this is much different than a a long-term project uh, or a a long-term issue like money and politics. This is a pandemic. Things are fluid. But um, what do you see when you put on your investigative hat and and look at the state's response so far, and, and how would you grade it? On transparency, I think I'd give the state maybe a B. I think that there is a lot of room for improvement. And, you know, we have kind of gone through this crisis response and emerged into this phase where this is the our new normal. And, you know, it's an issue that is going to be with us for a long time. And, and I think that it's important for the state to get it right on transparency in the months to come. I think it's also really important for the state to be getting it right on transparency right this minute. And we're not quite there. Having good, clear answers to the number of folks in the hospital and how that's changing on a day-to-day basis, which we still don't have from the state, it could not be more important. You know, Did the school closure uh, impact things? Did the stay-at-home order 
impact things in the way that it's supposed to? Do we need to do more? Do we not need to do more? That is a hugely important question, and we should be getting clear answers there. How the state's doing overall, you know, the, the, the modeling and the projections that we're seeing look like Oregon may escape the worst of this, but that is all predicated on these unprecedented shutdowns continuing for an indeterminate amount of time. Because as soon as you, you, you loosen, um, you know, the, the spigot cases will start going back up and the state does not have right now the testing capacity or the ability to effectively trace a sick person's contacts, like 70 to 90% of the people that they had contact with, you know, to control the virus from spreading the way that it was before we shut down uh, to control it from happening again, keep it from happening again. Uh, Multnomah County uh, would imagine is the, the, you know, one of the, or if not the best funded health department in the state, uh, they have seven people on staff who can do contact tracing and that's just not going to cut it. And, and so as we move forward, uh, you know, that is a, a discussion that we need to be happening, that we need to be having that I'm not seeing a lot of discussion or reconciliation with and and really i mean that that couldn't be more important to like all four million people who live in the state well thank you for pushing and for taking the time to talk about this journey i i know it it seems like it's been happening forever but it's only been a little more than a month and uh, we've really appreciate your coverage hey, i appreciate the opportunity to talk about it Now, reporter Shane Dixon-Cavanaugh. Shane Dixon-Cavanaugh, thanks for taking time to chat today. I appreciate it. Andrew, it's uh, great to be back on your podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Shane, you wrote a terrific obituary on Lynn Bryan, who is the first known person to die in Oregon from COVID-19. Before you tell us about Lynn, how did you get the story? It's been so hard to get information about, about these Oregonians and how did you how did you find out about Lynn? We've really been interested and uh, devoted to trying to find as many people, not those just those who have died, but those who have also gotten infected with the virus, to try to tell uh, real human stories about everybody who's been affected by this disease. And that's not the easiest thing in the world to do uh, because state health officials and local health officials are releasing very little information um, about COVID-19 patients. And even with those who end up dying, what we end up receiving or learning about them is we get their age, we get their county of residence. Mm -hmm. uh, They also provide information on where that individual has died, whether it's at a hospital or uh, sometimes at their own home. And in one case, uh, it was not clear where the person died because it wasn't a hospital and they didn't say it was somebody's home. Anyway, um, hope I'm not going too much on a tangent there. No, but you've so, been you've been monitoring the numbers for us for weeks now. So you kind of have a detailed knowledge of what we are told at the time. Right. And so that's what happened with 
Lynn Bryan's story is um, I ended up speaking with somebody a couple of weeks ago who happened to mention that uh, the first person to die in the state from coronavirus, and we knew that it was a 70-year-old man from Mm -hmm. Multnomah County who died at the Portland Veterans Hospital on March 14th. That's all we know. Uh, Somebody had reached out to me and had suggested or thought or believed that uh, the first person to die of COVID-19 in the state was a dance instructor or had taught dance at some point in the Portland area and had also recently been at a popular uh, dance club country western bar in Tualatin called Bushwhackers. Um, But unfortunately, I wasn't able to get the individual's name um, or rather, I wasn't able to get Lynn Bryan's name from this person who had contacted me. It wasn't clear if they had it or if they had heard this second or third hand. But just with those two pieces of information, dance instructor in the Portland area and bushwhackers, I started looking for ways to maybe find out who this was. And it was one of these situations uh, that happens in journalism where it's kind of just dumb luck that you end up finding what you're looking for. I came across a directory of dance instructors in the Portland area, you know, dozens of names uh, of individuals. Just to be clear, Lynn Bryan wasn't listed on this directory, but, uh, you know, I picked up the phone and I just started calling numbers on this directory. And at some point I ended up getting uh, a person on the phone by the name of Robin Robinson, and he is a dance instructor in Portland who also happens to teach at Bushwhackers in Tualatin. And he, uh, and as did many people in sort of the dance community in the Portland area, there's a, there's a real uh, sort of strong group of uh, social dancers, people who go to a number of different clubs around town and do all sorts of dancing from country two-step and line dancing to West Coast swing to other styles of dancing. And so Robin Robinson was able to tell me, uh, you know, the name of the of the person who died and that he was, in fact, a dance instructor, Lynn Bryan. And he had also told me that a number of other friends of Lynn had also gotten sick. So suddenly we went from you know, a single coronavirus case where somebody died to hearing about three or four or five other people uh, that were close friends of this man uh, who also got sick. And that's how I ended up uh, getting in touch with Mitch Cromier, who was one of Lynn Bryan's best friends. Who was Lynn Bryan? Well, uh, Lynn Bryan was a friend to a large number of folks. He was a father, you know, a lifelong Oregonian who grew up in Newburgh. Uh, served a number of years in the military. He was in the Army, hence why he was treated at the Veterans Hospital in Portland when he got sick. I mentioned in the story itself, sort of referred to Lynn Bryan as a cowboy at heart, and that's kind of how friends and family wanted to uh, discuss him. Because uh, on the one hand, uh, he bounced around the state a bit. He lived in Eugene for a number of years, and then later in Portland. Uh, He was a Southeast Portland resident when he got sick. Uh, But, uh, you know, his real passions were uh, dancing. Specifically, he was uh, great at uh, the the, the country two-step. 
and line dancing, but he was also very proficient at other styles as well, I learned. And, you know, he worked at a country western bar as a dance instructor, a very popular place called uh, Dukes, which unfortunately closed in 2018 here in Portland. Yeah. And then for Eugene folks uh, who may be listening to this podcast, a lot of people in Eugene remember uh, Rock and Rodeo, uh, which was a very popular country western dance club in Eugene. And Lynn had actually worked there and helped run it when it had first opened in the 1980s and 1990s. And Rock and Rodeo uh, was down on 7th Avenue in downtown Eugene. Um, I've spent spent uh, time at both of those now shuttered dance halls, I guess. So story really hit home. Those are the types of details, you know, that we as reporters crave um, because it actually, instead of a one sentence line of a 70 year old Multnomah County resident who was a veteran died at X facility uh, that showed this is a guy with uh, deep connections to the state. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I talked to a lot of people for this story. Not all of them ended up in the uh, final version, but it was pretty clear that uh, he was also very well known in those circles. Again, there is a very robust uh, dance scene in the in the Portland metro area and actually up and down the West Coast and in the Pacific Northwest. And Lynn Bryan was a part of that. So a lot of people knew him, especially because he was well known from his time at Dukes and also at Bushwhackers, and he participated in these Footloose Friends events as well, which bring out uh, anywhere from 100 to 150 people uh, on, a, on a Friday night on any given month. So he had a lot of connections uh, in the community, in the Portland area. A lot of people knew him, and a lot of people really loved him. We still don't know so much about COVID-19. This is all happening in real time, but we are told that people who are most vulnerable are those with underlying conditions. Um, did Lynn have any underlying conditions? I mean, he was obviously an active guy who, um, you know, danced and kept, you know, busy. Yeah. Um, talking with uh, Lynn's friends and his daughter, Jennifer, uh, we learned that uh, Lynn had been a uh, had type one diabetes and was insulin dependent. And uh, from what we've read in sort of the medical literature and from public health experts, uh, being diabetic uh, puts you at a higher risk uh, if you happen to contract coronavirus. And then also just relatively recently in January of this year, uh, Lynn had also had a, a pretty serious heart attack and was sort of still recovering from that when he got sick at the beginning of March. But uh, even though he had just had a heart attack and had some of these uh, you know, prior health issues, it was very clear from everybody that we spoke with, that I spoke with, that uh, you know, having those, those health issues was something that uh, Lynn didn't want to have slow him down at all. He was a very social, gregarious person, and again, loved to be out there, uh, attending dance clubs and events throughout the city. And so he was continuing to do that up until the day before he ended up in the hospital. You set the scene in, in your obituary with this card game. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously going back to his very close friends, how are they doing? How are they feeling? It's got to be really terrifying to have a dear friend fall ill and then die so suddenly from this disease. 
Yeah, and uh, the and the, the the story itself with uh, Lynn and his friends is kind of even more uh, surprising or tragic, or it has this sort of tragic twist, which is, uh, you know, the story starts with uh, Lynn's friend Mitch, uh, who I re- referenced earlier. Uh, was having there was a regular card game that Lynn and his friends would have on Sundays. And Lynn didn't show up to this card game uh, uh, on Sunday, March 8th, the day he was hospitalized. And his buddy Mitch was concerned about him and went out to look for him and found Lynn at Lynn's uh, apartment in southeast Portland, lightheaded and having trouble breathing. And then Lynn collapses two times while Mitch is there, which prompts Mitch to call an ambulance uh, you know, call 911. And so uh, Lynn was being taken off to a hospital on the 8th, uh, and he tested positive for coronavirus two days later, and four days after that, he was dead. But what ended up happening to Mitch was he ended up getting coronavirus as well and was hospitalized too, and in fact spent 12 days in the hospital. And uh, Mitch also has some health issues. He's on dialysis currently. Mm. So that was part of the reason why he was hospitalized for as long as he was. But still, he got very sick. And then a number of other friends of theirs also tested positive for COVID-19. None of them, none of the other ones ended up in the hospital. But still, so we have Lynn, who ends up dying from this disease, and one of his best friends almost dying. And then uh, a handful of other friends uh, who got sick as well. I mean, and then, uh, you know, one of the things that we pointed out in the story and that Mitch sort of talked about is, so all of this has happened. And even though it seems like March 8th is four weeks ago, it sort of seems like a lifetime in a different universe. Like, keep in mind that back on March 8th, a month ago, we had less than uh, 10 or maybe just over 10 uh, known coronavirus co- coronavirus cases in the entire state. Nobody had died. It was just a completely different sort of reality. Like there still weren't that many people getting sick back on March eighth, or people ending up in the hospital, or you know, obviously Lynn Bryan was the first person to die from this illness in the state. But so you know, Lynn passed away on March fourteenth. It's April eighth today, and uh, you know. In that time, none of his friends uh, have even had the chance to see each other since all of this has happened because of the shelter-in-place orders by the state. So uh, as Mitch sort of puts it in the story, they have even had a chance to properly grieve the loss of their very good friend. It's devastating. So given you know your reporting and your story that you told, about Lynn, you know, and we see these daily updates of whether it's an 83-year-old woman in Marion County or 71-year-old man in Marion County or 91-year-old woman in Washington County. I mean, what do you think about now when you see those numbers and what are you wondering about? You know, I I can speak a little personally here, but also just uh, imagine sort of the larger public in our state as well. I mean, I know, for one, as both a journalist and as an Oregonian, I want to know more about the people who have uh, been deeply affected by this illness. And having the chance to sort of tell Lynn's story is just sort of a good reminder that every person 
who has died from this illness or have gotten sick from it or have known somebody who's gotten sick or died. I mean, every one of those individuals has, uh, you know, has a, a, a life and a story that is as rich and is full of details as, as lens. And it's unfortunate that often it's so hard to even be able to put one, a single one of these stories together and, you know, as of today, we've had 33 other Oregonians who have yeah. died from this illness. And, you know, all of them probably, you know, lived uh, lives that were as full and as meaningful as Lynn Bryan's and probably touched as many people as well. And I just think it's such an important thing for us to remember that Um during this time, because I mean, it's just a constant stream of information of infections and deaths, both here in this state and around the country. But uh, and those numbers and just the sheer volume uh, can be overwhelming. And that can be, uh, you know, to the point where we're just sort of left there with little else besides startling figures. And I think it's just so important for us to be able to take a step back every once in a while and to let just a single one of those stories unfold in a more complete fashion, I guess. Well, thanks for doing it and I hope you and your family stay healthy. Same to you, Andrew. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. Check out all of our coverage about the coronavirus pandemic on OregonLive.com. If you listen to this podcast and like what we're doing, please leave us a rating and review in iTunes. It helps others find the show. And check out our other podcasts, Peak Northwest featuring Jamie Hale and Jim Ryan, and Oregon Lives featuring Samantha Swindler and Tom Holman. Those are available anywhere you get your podcasts. Reliable news about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting lives, jobs, and the economy in Oregon is more important than ever. You can support our work for just 10 bucks a month. Subscribe at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.